Bibles today, we're going to continue on our series called, very simply, Open Heart. And this series is uh, kind of basic in the idea of it. Essentially what we're doing is we are just going through the different letters from Paul. And we're opening up to the verse or two in the middle of that letter or somewhere in that letter that really informs the rest of that letter. So the verse that has that rich lifeblood of the entire letter. The verse that maybe uh, pulls from areas around the letter and then pushes back out to them. Really the core verse or two of that letter. And, and what we're doing is we're, as we're opening to the heart of each of Paul's letters is we're also asking what does this then speak to my heart. Okay. Now a couple things I've noticed about this series. It could have been named anything. As I was working on this I thought boy we could have named this life verses. Like, I don't know if you have a life verse, but the idea with a life verse is just that there are certain verses that really inform our entire lives, and maybe we take that one verse and we claim it and say, this is the verse on which my entire life will be founded. I don't know what your life verse is, or if you even have done anything like that. I have. Um, But this very much could be life verses, because these are all verses that are verses that should be very deep inside, inside of us, and each of these that we've already talked about could qualify as one of those. The other thing we could have called it is memory verses. Because each and every one of the verses we've covered so far are all verses that if you were wise, maybe afterwards you would stop and say, boy, I, I probably should memorize that verse. You know, maybe this is a verse that should be a verse that I put deep again in my heart and so that I can call it back to my memory regularly. So we could have named this thing anyway, any, anything we wanted. It, we could have named it anything, <laughs> but we went with open heart, okay, um, because you might lose your life at Praise Assembly, apparently. Wow. Um, so open heart is what we called it. The verses we've covered so far are Colossians 2, uh, verses 6 and 7, which is very just plainly says, just as you received uh, uh, Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That was what we covered when we kicked this series off, and then this last week, Uh, We talked about Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, so, but I don't know if you've noticed also along with this that so far this whole series has been talking about Jesus. Right, it's been talking about the cross. Which is not a surprise to me, because the core of Paul's message was Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I resolved among you to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the core of Paul's message. And really, truly, I think for some of us, when we read Paul's letters, we we read them and then we go, boy, I'm not understanding what I'm getting here. I'm not feels like maybe this is beyond me, like it's too deep for me. And these are deep truths that we're reading. And often I think that because we think it's a deep truth that maybe it's not, like it's too thick for me. Right? And, and yet when we 
stop and we slow down and we look at what is the message that Paul is saying underneath, what is the core of what he is saying, then all of a sudden it opens it up. And that's again what this series is about. I think sometimes we think in order to love God and to serve God and to do great things in God's name that we need to know a lot of things. And, and, and I heard somebody say one time that that's not at all the case. In order to do great things for God, here's what you need. You need to know a few things very, very deeply. And again, that's what this series is. It's taking those few things and it's driving them deep into our hearts. Okay? So if you would grab your Bibles and open them up to 1 Corinthians today. Because we're turning to the heart of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the surviving seed, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, as you're opening up your Bible, I'm going to just pray that at the same time we're opening our Bible, that we would be opening up our hearts today to hear the message. And so I'm just going to pray over you even as you're opening your Bibles. Father, right now I just pray that this time that we have together would not be in vain. God, I pray that this time that we have together would be superintended by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I don't apologize for this series making us think. I don't apologize for diving into deep scripture. Instead, I just plead with you by your Holy Spirit that you would take what we have to study today and read through today and drive it deeply into our hearts in order that this would be more than just an endeavor in, in our own power, but instead that it would be just your Holy Spirit working in us. And I pray that as a result of what happens in the next 40 minutes, the Lord, that your Holy Spirit would change our lives and, and that in some ways the truth would make us true. I thank you for it, and I pray this all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be in verse 58. Here's what it says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So this is really like the pinnacle of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a long letter uh, from Paul to the church in Corinth. It's a long letter. And during this letter, he covers a lot of ground. He talks about divisions in the church, and he talks about uh, sexual morality, and he talks about food, and he talks about our worship gatherings and what they should look like and the gifts of the Spirit in those worship gatherings. He talks about the resurrection, and, and as he comes through all of these major things, he reaches 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, and then as soon as it's over, he goes into the closing, kind of like goodbyes and may greet this person for me and all of those kinds of things. And so this isn't, it's the pinnacle of 1 Corinthians, but it's more than that because what he talks about here forms the bedrock in a lot of his other discussion points and, and what he's pointing out. So it's more than just the pinnacle, it is very much the heart. It is the thing that causes and gives reason to the other things he discusses in 1 Corinthians. And here he says to them, and I love, it brings me great encouragement how he starts it. He starts by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers... Okay, 1 Corinthians was written because of the fact that 
he received a letter from them. And he received some reports from other people of issues in the church. And so the entire book of 1 Corinthians, the entire letter, is really designed in order to correct problems in the church. So it must have been incredibly discouraging for Paul, even like just taking the wind out of his sails, to have to write a letter that is so long, right? I mean, because if he's just correcting problems in the church, then the fact that it's long says something about that church. And really, any church that you need to tell, don't sleep with your mom. Even if she's your stepmom, that's not okay. Any church you need to do that with, I would imagine that that would cause Paul some, okay, there's some problems here. And yet, even as he has to say that, he recognizes and sees that this is a church that is in the midst of a culture that is creating all kinds of pressure for them. This is a church that is in a city where they have a temple to Aphrodite, where in the temple they had temple prostitutes. And if you were going to go and worship Aphrodite, you would go and participate in the prostitution. And Paul has to call them out for that too. But even still, he doesn't say, therefore, you pagan fools. What does he say? He says, therefore, my beloved brothers. And this brings me great encouragement. Because I sure don't have it all figured out. And there are a lot of things that I'm not doing spot on. And Paul, in the midst of everything that's going wrong in Corinth, says to them, you are my beloved brothers. So I take encouragement at that because I hear I am his beloved brother. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, and he continues on and he says, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Um, I love that word steadfast. In the ESV, it's used 221 times in the Bible. And the reason why I think I love it so much, I read every single one of them this week, is of those 221 times that the word steadfast is used in the Bible, 24 of those times are about you and me. Be steadfast, essentially like this. 24 of those times it's talking about us. Want to know why I love that? Because that means 197 times it's talking about God. That God is steadfast. In fact, every single one of those 197 times that it says that God is steadfast, it is talking specifically about his love. God's steadfast love. Steadfast means that it is settled Right? Like it, it doesn't need, it's not going to change. It's not going to be different tomorrow. His love for us is settled. That's why you have verses like Psalm 25, verse 10. Listen to this. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Or Psalm 85, verse 10, which says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a great verse talking about Jesus Christ. That righteousness, right standing before God and peace with God, which can sometimes feel like they're opposed, that they not only meet, but they kiss each other in Jesus Christ. 
This is talking about our God, and it says that his love is steadfast, that it's settled, and you don't need to wonder tomorrow if his love for us is going to change. It's not like his love for us is fickle. James chapter 1, verse 17 says that he does not change like the shifting shadows. So this is something that we can rely on, and maybe somebody in here just needs to hear that today. You can tune out the rest of this message. God's love for you will not change. It is steadfast. Tomorrow it's not going to be different. I don't know how you've been loved in the past. But God's love for you does not change. It is settled. But Paul says, you be steadfast. Now, in our small groups this last week, it was a great small group. I, I have best small group. And there were multiple times this last week, even in our small group or afterwards, that I looked back on things that were said in my small group and I drew encouragement from that and strength from that. I mean, that's really what they're all about. But there was a point in our small group where we asked the question, if you were to describe God in one adjective, what would it be? And then we flipped it and we said, if we were to describe ourselves in one adjective, what would it be? And at that point, I had to stop and think as others were giving their answers, because it took me a while to come to the word that I really felt like if I were to describe myself in one adjective, what would it be? And the answer was, after I had thought about it for some time, one word, fickle. I am fickle. And quite honestly... You are too. This is the human experience. We are fickle people. And yet Paul says to fickle people, be steadfast. Now how can he tell people who are fickle people to be steadfast? If, you, if you're in a boat and you find the perfect spot to go fishing, which is I think what people do, you're like, this is the spot I want to be. Well, the wind blows and the water moves. And boy, if you don't do something about it, you're going to float right away. So what do you do? You take out your anchor and you throw it in. You don't take your anchor and you don't drop it into the bottom of the boat and say, let's see how this works. No. You take your anchor and you throw it into something else. Right? Well, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Essentially, it is this. You're fickle. Dropping an anchor in your own boat isn't going to make much of a difference. You need to throw that anchor somewhere else. So throw it to Jesus. There have to be certain things that are settled in our soul. And that's what it means to be steadfast. Being steadfast means that, boy, there are certain things. There are certain things about God that we need to just know at a really deep level in our souls. And that's what this series, again, is about. It's not about knowing a bunch of stuff. It's about knowing a few things really, really deeply inside of us. 
Being settled means that I will not in my own heart shift because instead my anchor is not in me, it's in Jesus Christ. So he says, be steadfast and immovable. Be steadfast, immovable. If steadfast means in my own soul that I have certain things settled, immovable means that when there's pressures against me from the outside, I will not move from this spot. Right? Steadfast, I see, is internal. It's deep in my own soul. I won't, I won't, I won't shift and move around. Instead, I'm going to stay. And then immovable means when there's a pressure from the outside that would move me, I, I will be immovable. Which is really a beautiful thought. Because immovable means that no matter what crashes against me, no matter what pressures try to shift me, I will not be moved from certain things. Okay? Here's the thing, though. We need to make sure those things are the right things. Because sometimes I think we're like, you know what? I'm steadfast and immovable in my pew. That is not what Paul is talking about. Or maybe, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, or months ago, I suppose. It's that whole idea of planting our flag on a certain hill and saying, this is a hill to die for. And sometimes I think we're planting those flags on hills that are not to die for. And we're saying, I will not be moved from this. And God is saying, you should be moved from that. So be steadfast and immovable means that we need to know what is it that we're supposed to be steadfast and immovable in. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, which means this is coming out of something. What is he talking about here? Well, we need to back up in order to see that. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and go back from verse 58. Go to verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, or death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is talking about the fact that Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He came back from the dead. He says that's a big deal. And some of us, like, we're like, I get the cross. I get what Jesus did there. I understand that, and that's meaningful to me. But the resurrection, man, it's a little more ethereal as to the value, I mean, as far as what it does for me. And so we kind of, like, think, okay, maybe the resurrection isn't quite as important. Paul is here saying, as a result of the resurrection, we need to be steadfast, and we need to be immovable. He says, here's why. He says... Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Which I love how Paul, the, the entire 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. And then here as he comes to the end of it, he ends with this like song that probably he pulled from somewhere else, but it's kind of taunting towards death. Did you pick up on that? Oh, death, where is your victory? 
Oh, death, where is your sting? I love it. It's, it's beautiful. But here's the thing. We still die. Right? If Jesus Christ doesn't come back, each and every person in here is going to die. I'm a terrible parent. And don't vote me out quite yet. Let me give you some context. But when my kids are whining about something, when my kids, not when they're crying, not when they're hurt, but when they're whining about something that in the realm of human experience is a minor thing, but to them it's the whole world, and they're just whining, and I said, listen, this isn't a big deal. After I get past that point, there are times, and you'll have to forgive me, where I just say to my kids, listen, life is hard and then you die. And it never seems to help. <laughs> I hate to burst your bubble. If Jesus doesn't come back, each and every person in this room, we're going to die. It is appointed to each of us to die. Death is not gone. And yet, it says that Jesus triumphed over death, and that not only that, it has lost its victory, and more than that, it's lost its sting. My dad is probably the hardest worker I know. I know a lot of hard workers. He's been a hard worker for many years. He's done many things in his life, didn't go to college, but able, was able to just through working just advance to the point where he was able to retire younger. And when he retired, the reason why he retired was so that he could take up the hobby of beekeeping. So he has hundreds of beehives at this point. And he loves doing it. It's his passion. And he, he, he sets up little like observation hives and sells honey. And people just love it. And he loves it. And he loves them. And they love him. And it's just, he, it's just it brings him great joy to do this. But right after he had retired and really decided to move into this, at the time they were wintering their bees on, on our back 40. And so the thing about bees transporting them, because they were up in Wisconsin and then they would winter them in Springfield, Missouri on our back 40. And the thing about it is you have to transport them at night because you do not want to be at a gas station with a truck full of bees, 200 beehives, okay? And so they would do it at night because the bees were a little bit more docile in the evening. And so one night, he, or a couple weeks before, he told me, I'm coming down on this day, and I'll be there at like 3 in the morning. And I said, hey, look, Dad, if you're going to come, I'll come out, and I'll help you with those beehives. My dad is a man, and I am not, okay? <laughs> so 3 a.m. rolls around, and he says, hey, I'm here. So I get ready to go out and help him, and so I put on the full getup. Like, my dad's not even wearing a suit, and I've got on the thing that makes me look like I'm from another, like, planet. I've got the big mask on, and I've got the, the, the big, I mean, like, I'm like this, you know? And so I'm like, Psh, I'm good. I said, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man. And I said, why don't I go into the back of the truck where the 200 hives are? 
He didn't tell me until later there was also 1.2 million bees in the back of that truck, but whatever. And I said, I'll take the pallet jack, because these things are on pallets, and I'll steer it towards the end of the truck, and then you can take it with your loader and unload it and put it back in the area that you want to put it. I'm like, I got this. And he said, okay, that'll work. Let's do this. So 3 o'clock, we start working. 4 o'clock, I mean, it was a big job. I mean, I wasn't even, I was a little nervous when I accidentally tipped over one of the hives. Bees don't like that turns out, and um, yet, so I put it back together, said, knocked one over, said, oh, that's fine, and so kept working. About 5 a.m., we're finished up, and I'm, like, feeling really good about myself, really good, so I walk back into the house. I may have been walking with a little, I'm a man, and I get into my bedroom, and Liz is still asleep, and getting ready. I'm like, man, I can still get a couple hours of sleep, and hear a buzz. I thought that was weird. And then I hear the buzz again. And I feel the wings right here inside my pants. I screamed like a four-year-old girl. Liz jumps out of bed. She's like, what's wrong? I took off my clothes faster than I have since my wedding night. I mean, this is like, I was naked quick. And I'm like, what? Why? Because I've heard of a bee in the bonnet. And it's fundamentally different to have a bee in the boxers. And that bee had a stinger. And I knew it had a stinger. And I reacted because I knew it had a stinger. Here's the thing. Death is still around. But Jesus walked right up to death and he pulled that stinger out. See, the sting of death was sin. And that sting is gone, which means death somehow fundamentally for us has changed. He didn't protect us from death. He didn't give us a suit to go through death. He pulled the stinger out. Now, if I would have known that the bee had no stinger, I would have looked at that bee and said, ha, 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 where's the old stinger bee? And that's what Jesus did with death. He took the sting right out of it, so that means as we face it, it does not have the same power over us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And Jesus Christ took that victory, and what I love is the next verse. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he gained the victory, and he turned around and he gave it to us. So here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, take your anchor and throw it into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be steadfast, immovable. Why? Because of Jesus Christ's resurrection, death no longer has a sting for you. So we say, well, how important is the resurrection? What's more important, the, the cross or the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. When you're sitting on the plane, what's more important, the left wing or the right wing? They're both vitally important for us. 
And in the same way we find anchor in the cross of Jesus Christ, we find anchor in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we might not fully understand it, but here's the thing. Resurrection is more than just a celebration of springtime and the grass turning green and the bunnies doing what the bunnies do. It's something more than that. It is a celebration and a recognition of the fact that death no longer has a victory. And it works out in our lives like this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, coming out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, if this wasn't just written to theologians and professors, it was also not just written to vocational ministers. This was written to the people of God, people who were day laborers, stay-at-home moms, and salesmen, and shopkeepers. This was written to all of us. So what in the world is the work of the Lord? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says to us, but uh, verse 10, verse 31 says, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says something essentially that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You hear that multiple times. And I used to think that that was saying that no matter what we're putting our hand to, that it's the work of God, which I don't think is true anymore. I don't think that it's that whatever our work is, it's the work of God. I think instead what I would say is that whatever we are doing can become the work of God. So what I mean by that is this. Every situation, every possibility, everything can be redeemed and made into the work of God. Right, because here it says, always abounding in the work of God. This doesn't say on Sundays, abounding in the work of God. This doesn't say when you feel like it. It means at all times. It means no matter where we are. And the word abounding is like overflowing, and some people interpret this to say, boy, um, you better work really hard. And keep working and go to excess and, and work some more. I've heard pastors and preachers say that very thing about this verse because it's abounding, it's overflowing in the work of God. And that's not how I read this. What I hear is when it says always, that means in every situation and wherever you are and whatever you're putting your hand to, you overflow and make it into the work of God, which means that every opportunity, every position, Every situation, everything can be turned into the work of God if it overflows out of you. Which means at work, and at school, and at home, and, and when you're working with the kids, can be made into the work of God if you do it a certain way. If you focus on certain things. If it pours out of you. Anything can be made into ministry for Jesus Christ. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Continues on, and he gives us the foundation of this verse, which is vitally important for us. 
Because here's how he says the resurrection functions as something that we should anchor into. Okay? He says, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Words in vain pop out at me there. I hate doing things in vain. I hate laundry. I hate dishes. Because no matter how many times you do them, they just keep coming back. Vanity. It's all vanity. <laughs> Paul says, knowing that the work that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Have you ever done something and afterwards you realize, boy, that, that was just completely in vain? When I was in Bible school, the first comp class I had, I wanted to really do well. Because prior to going to the Bible school, I, I didn't apply myself in school. And in high school, we, I said, oh, yeah, you can just put some stuff on paper and the teacher won't even know. They'll just, they, they're, they're dumb. And I realized that they're not dumb. <laughs> and they know when you have no idea what you're talking about. And so when I was at Central Bible College, I, first comp class, I really wanted to do well. So I really poured myself into the paper. I mean, like, in preparation... Like, I, I, I did more than I've ever done with this sort of thing. And I'm working away on it, and I, I don't remember all of the circumstances, but I remember the moment when either the power went off or something, and I had not adequately saved. And everything I had done was gone. It was lost. I remember, I don't know the situation, but I remember the feeling. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I hate you, Bill Gates. I hate you, Bill Gates. I hate you, Bill Gates. I hate you. Like, you know what I'm talking about? That moment when you lose all of the work that you have done, and you realize, oh, man, that was completely in vain. Or how about, imagine, for those of you who are, in college now, or the first day of class, you walk in, and the professor, the first day of class, the professor has one job, and you need to just know this. If you're a student, you need to know your, the job of your professor the first day of class is just to scare the living daylights out of you. Syllabus day, the whole point is to make you think you're going to die so that you put more effort in throughout the semester, okay? I just... Now you know, okay? If at the end of the day, for syllabus day, you go, I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it through the semester. Your professors have done their job, okay? But imagine you went to class that first day, and your professor says, you know what? You have one paper this semester, and it's going to be 97% of your grade. And this one paper needs to be so long, and you need to spend your entire semester working on it. And so you, being a good student, decide, I'm going to do exactly what the professor said. So you work. But more than just work, 
you have that same feeling I just talked about where you pour yourself into that paper. You know this is 97% of your grade and this is the class you need to graduate. And so you do more than just pour yourself into the paper. You pray over that paper. More than praying over it, you weep over that paper. Like you, you, you struggle with it and all semester long while you're looking out your door and you see the other people coming and going and playing video games. You're not. You're buckled down and you're working and you're focused on it. And you come to the end of the semester, the day you're supposed to turn in that paper, and you take that paper and you put it in one of those clear sleeves that... The students who always put them in the clear sleeves were just trying to brown nose with the teacher. You know what I'm saying? But for you, it's not that. It's the, it's the fact that, man, this is your life for the last semester. And you want to make sure that it shows the way that you care about it and the way you're invested in it and how much you've prayed over it and cried over it. And you bring that to class. Next to you is somebody who's blowing his nose in a napkin. And he looks at your paper and he goes, pulls out a marker and starts scribbling on the napkin. And you're sitting there with your back up straight, ready to turn in that paper. And the professor walks in and says, remember how I said this was going to be 97% your grade? Turns out, I'm just going to give everybody a gold star. So just take those papers and walk up here and throw it in the trash. Paul said that without the resurrection, there's really no point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32, he says, listen, if there's no resurrection, then we should just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we'll die. He said, if there is no resurrection, then there's no point in doing anything but maximizing our pleasure in the moment. But he says, if there is a resurrection, then those things that we pour out in this life have lasting influence and meaning beyond this life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 11 through 15, here's what it says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. What is he saying here? That the work done in the name of the Lord survives beyond this life. And we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about past that, those things that in the name of the Lord we do with effort that is worship to him. Those things survive. And believe me, I don't fully understand it. But here's what I do know. At some point, you got to take the analogy of the paper and leave it behind and focus on reality. Imagine, instead with me, that you're a new parent. 
And you know this is the greatest thing that you're ever going to put and sow into. So you invest yourself in that child. You cry over that child. You pray for that child. And you take all that you are and you pour it into that child. And you raise that child. One day that child's about to turn 18 years old. And you're so proud for this moment. It's time for them to begin to step out on their own. And the day before their 18th birthday, they die. The hope of the resurrection means that it was not in vain. Because it's not just the small span of this life that matters. But there is a view far beyond. See, the resurrection means that the seed survives. Though it dies, it survives. And the work and the investment and everything we do in order to really just be a part of advancing the kingdom of God and, and at work when we do more than just working but we're talking to our, our, our co-workers and inviting them to church and at school when everybody else is going a certain direction and we decide to go a different direction that those things have value more than even just a reward that there is value to them. And again, I don't fully understand it but we're talking about more than just heaven we're talking about at the resurrection that there is value from those things which means that our view is not just today and our view is not just tomorrow our view is what difference will this make in 10,000 years and I used to ask myself that question regularly this week, I really just felt strongly like I needed to adjust it. I felt like instead what I needed to ask myself is, how do I make the work that I am doing valuable in 10,000 years? Not just what value is it in 10,000 years, but how do I make what I am doing of value in the long term? See, the resurrection says to us, Cast your anchor in me, because every seed that dies survives. And the work and the effort and the pouring in has value beyond today. And you may never even see it. You may never get it on this side of the veil. You may never get, get to witness the value that we're talking about. But it's of more importance than just today. So Paul says, take your anchor and throw it in the resurrection. It is so important that we understand the value of the resurrection deeply in our hearts. Throw your anchor into the resurrection and it will hold you steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good work, the work of the Lord, knowing that the work in the Lord is not in vain. Boy, I hope we grasp that deeply because that's what the resurrection means. Father,